Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. All right, here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I hope you enjoyed our opening music called Clarion Call. It's by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal truly is to talk to all, raising everyone's voice, big and small, around the world, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates, researchers, authors, and more. Today is a live show, so you can always call in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. Now, before we get to our topic on feuding families and how to get them to a peaceful spot. I always like to do a couple of shout outs. So I want to thank Coro Health, C-O-R-O Health, for allowing people to still be able to download two of their apps during the pandemic. And you're going to want to take advantage of that before this gets uh, pulled off the page there. But you can download Music First and Coro Faith free. Um, and again, just go to Coro, C-O-R-O Health.com. Uh, if you're looking for resources, uh, one stop you might want to make is our Dementia Map. It's a global resource directory uh, that can help you find that roadmap and develop that roadmap for your own personal journey there. We have all kinds of resources. It's free to use. And if you are a player in this industry, Somebody who, who provides services, products, or tools, has written a book, maybe you have a YouTube channel or a blog, we would love you to become a member. There are both uh, free and paid plans. And again, it's free to end users. So um, go to DementiaMap.com. Also, you may be looking for support groups. The Memory Cafe directory has uh, <clears throat> the majority of the Memory Cafes in five different countries listed. And some of those are starting to meet in person again, but you'll be able to find out who is meeting, are they in person, or, you know, are they still online? So go to memorycafedirectory.com. We're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and then we will be right back to talk with our guests. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. 
the foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The foot bar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the foot bar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the foot bar walker. Well, welcome back, everyone. We're going to talk about how to help feuding families become peaceful partners. And it can be a really um, complicated journey when you are navigating caring for someone else and then add dementia into the loop and uh, it can really go uh, awry sometimes, and not all families are equipped to do that on their own. So our guest today is uh, Katharina uh, W. Dress, and she is an adult family and elder care mediator and conflict coach. She is also the founder of Aging in Harmony, and she helps older adults and their families and uh, their care partners navigate all of those difficult situations that can come about with aging. Um, and she does this both in person and online. So, uh, Katharina, welcome to the show today. I'm just thrilled to have you with us because I know a lot of families struggle in terms of how to give care and how to work as a team. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I really am glad that I'll be able to talk to your listeners today. Wonderful. Now, before I get into my line of questions, I always like to ask everybody if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yes, I have. Um, I have a sister who has dementia. She lives in England. And... um, you know, being in the field of aging, I notice the signs much before anybody else either noticed or was willing to acknowledge. And it's been really sad because, you know, I'm far away and uh, it's been a few years since we can't talk anymore. She just, her speech was affected and so she doesn't feel comfortable talking on the phone anymore so it's been really sad for me being so far away and not being able to help but i think of her often and i you know do what i can to help other families who are closer geographically to me who have a loved one with dementia oh wonderful well why don't we talk about um your work i I really appreciate you sharing the specifics of your own journey there um what what actually do you do as an adult family or elder uh, mediator so you know how you know of course and i'm sure your listeners do too that a lot of families don't quite see eye to eye about what should happen to their aging loved ones, you know, five family members, six opinions kind of thing, especially Mm -hmm. when you throw dementia into the mix. And it's hard to talk about those things. You know, it's it's hard for anybody to have, any group of people uh, to have a, a, a conversation about a controversial issue on their own without a professional facilitator. So mm-hmm. I'm basically trained to bring the family together 
to the table, you know, the physical or the virtual table, and facilitate a conversation about all the decisions that need to be make, made, either with the uh, older adults still being a partner in the conversation or if they're already so far down the road of dementia that they don't participate in making decisions for their own life anymore than just the adult children or whoever the decision makers are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, one of the things I think that comes into play is sometimes people think mediation, they think court, you know, so let's talk about the difference between, you know, what's available to uh, a family out there and what's the difference between working with an attorney or a social worker or an elder care manager. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I often say facilitator instead of mediator because people associate with the word mediation legal conflicts. I really help people talk out any kind of conflicts and my mission sorry, my mission is to help families work it out so that they don't end up in the hands of attorneys or courts, especially uh, you know, conservatorship is what's called in in California or adult guardianship court in the rest of the country. Uh, so um, so an attorney, you know, you need the help of an attorney uh, to just make either make legal arrangements ahead of time, um, hopefully enough ahead of time that the adult can still assign somebody to make decisions for them. Or if they can't, then you may need uh, an attorney to help you petition to, you know, take control for your loved one's affairs. So that's when you need an attorney. An attorney is, you know, an advocate uh, for whoever contacts them. It could be the elder and it could be somebody else who is petitioning to gain control over the elder's affairs. Um, so that's the role of an attorney. Social workers can be really, really helpful in these situations and they work with everybody in the family. However, they approach the situation as an advocate for the elder. Their goal in every uh, conversation with the family is to find solutions that are in the elder's best interest. And that's not always very motivating to all family members because, you know, a lot of families, not everybody cares about each other as much as we might like <laughs> and so especially if when they were growing up the parents may not have been the very best parents adult children can be resentful if all of a sudden their life is supposed to revolve around what's best for their their aging parent and so the big difference of what i have to offer is that i'm a professional neutral I try to talk to everybody individually first and hear their perspective and really give them the feeling that I understand where they're coming from without any judgment. And then I can bring them together and I can help them hear each other and understand where they're coming from without any judgment. So being a neutral really helps um, create understanding that somebody who uh, is advocating for one side over another may not have. 
Okay. Well, and I think it really is important to kind of get that neutral position in there um, when you're dealing with such complicated issues like family. Who usually, you know, reaches out to help for you? Uh, who is it in the family that, that is kind of the common denominator? Or maybe there isn't one. No, there is. I think it's typically the person who in every family takes the initiative about anything that has to do with planning for the aging loved ones. Most of the time it's an adult daughter, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, sometimes it's even a daughter of a law if there's, you know, if all the kids are, are sons. Um, and so that person usually reaches out to me too when they are trying to get some conversations going or plans made and they're running into a roadblock. Okay. And that, that makes sense um, that it's kind of that lead horse trying to get everybody on track because they're usually the organized ones <laughs> and, and they're the ones that kind of typically, in my opinion, see big picture where maybe others in the family don't always see the big picture in the needs. Would you say that that's an accurate statement from, from what you see? Um, not necessarily. Okay. Again, I guess my perspective as as a neutral, from that perspective, I would say, you know, they're, they're in every family, everybody has their own role to play, and there's just usually one person who is more proactive. They're more proactive in every area of their life. That doesn't necessarily mean to me that they are big picture people. They are just proactive people. <laughs> they don't like, okay. you know, the unknown. They like to be in control. They like predictability. Uh, so where other people may more be the reactive one, who you know, goes to the with the flow. All those perspectives, I think, are equally important because mm-hmm. the person who tends to take the initiative. Um, can also be overly worried. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that makes sense. Who typically um, partakes in these elder mediations, um, you know, or, or kind of coaching meetings? How, how is that handled? And who is who's invited? Is there anybody that's ever kind of left out and said, no, you can't participate in that? Okay, I want to distinguish between three different services that I offer and the answer. Okay. So your question is different for each of them. So in an ideal world, I like it best when somebody contacts me when they're trying to make plans, but the situation hasn't fallen apart yet, and Mm -hmm. they are running into roadblocks where people don't want to talk about it, people don't think it's necessary yet. So in that situation, I offer to invite everybody to the table and um, offer what I call a facilitated family meeting to make plans for the future, ask questions that people often don't think of yet at that time, help people figure out what resources they need to research, and then come back with the answers and then hopefully agree on a plan of how to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in that situation, it's probably the, the planner and the family who constantly contacts me and I ask them who else they think they should be involved because ideally, you know, if mom or dad aren't 
too far along the journey of dementia, everybody who's affected by a decision should be involved in making the decision. So mm-hmm. if it's early enough, then, you know, I asked for permission to talk to all the other family members who should be involved in the process moving forward and I have individual conversations with them first and then invite them to participate in a joint meeting, including, as I said, mom or dad. Almost always I I want to talk to mom or dad alone, even if they have already been diagnosed with dementia and, you know, everybody in the family agrees that they shouldn't be involved in the process. It's still helpful for me to have a first-hand conversation with them so I can experience the situation from my perspective rather than from their perspective, which sometimes is, you know, overly protective. Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility as an elder mediator to always involve the elder and the decisions affecting their life to the degree that is possible. So, So that's the facilitated family meetings, right? It's slightly different with what I call elder care mediation. That's when there already is a conflict. Some decisions have already been made. Maybe one sibling has power of attorney for the person, so they have to decide where mom gets to live and what kind of, or dad, and what kind of care they get. And another sibling has been assigned as power of attorney uh, for finances. That's often the case. And that person has to agree to the costs that are caused by what the other person decides, right? So they have to work together but they may not necessarily have the same view on what's necessary, and they may not ever have been able to work together very well. So that's an example for a situation where the one thing everybody agrees on is that there is already a conflict. Uh, The process is no different. I try to talk to everybody involved, and I invite them to participate in a joint conversation but it's a voluntary process. So the hardest mm-hmm. part in that situation often is to get people to the table. Now, the third thing of service I offer is what I call conflict coaching. That's typically just with one person. That can happen either because the person who first contacts me wants to learn some of my the tools of the trade so they can facilitate the family conversation on their own, Or it can happen because they or I have tried to uh, enroll other parties in a joint conversation and they're not willing to. So then um, I offer a series of conflict coaching sessions with just that one person so they can learn to approach the conversations differently and hopefully get different results on their own. So that's a series of usually a a package of like five or six hour-long sessions with just one person with role plays and, 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 you know, coming back, trying it out, coming back, trying it again, that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. Well, that's really, really helpful. Why don't you tell us what are the most common issues that people come to you with? Because I think everyone thinks, oh, my gosh, I'm all alone. Ours is the only family that can't get along and and work through this. But I I would imagine you see some common themes. Yes. 
Um, very much so. And some of them are themes that I'm sure you see all the time, too. One of the earliest things that often happens, earliest concern is um, that somebody in the family thinks it's time for mom or dad to give up the car keys. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's huge resistance to that because driving your own car gives such a sense of independence that's very important to people in this culture. And so, you know, some families just take away the car keys or disable the car or something like that, and that causes really deep hurt and and strains the relationships. So I help um, having conversations about that, helping the elder understand that it's not necessarily about whether or not it is safe for them to drive, but that it is about how much their kids worry about them and how that worry affects their life. So that can be very uh, effective. So that's one often entry point. Another one is um, when the elder lives alone. Most of the time it's the women outliving their husbands and uh, the adult children are seeing signs of that worry them, whether they need help live to enable them to keep living at home or whether it may be time to move to assisted living or some sort of senior housing, Um, Mm -hmm. also to avoid uh, the isolation, which is not good for for people's health, including, you know, the the cognitive health. So um, that's another thing that often comes up. And again, because independence is such an important value in this culture, the elders you know, often really fight before they're willing to accept help, especially uh, professional help. And the, the adult children, you know, may live far away or are busy with their own families and their jobs and everything and can't do for mom or dad what needs to be done. So, so that's another very common issue. Another common issue is the one that I already mentioned earlier, conflicts between different family members who have either joint power of attorney or different types of power of attorney and don't agree on what's the best path forward. So those are three that come to mind right away. Okay. Um, yeah, those those seem like they would all be, be major issues. And, and I loved when you talk about the importance of independence and purpose um, because sometimes I think that people forget about that and they just kind of, get down to the task, but they, they're not thinking about how people feel about that after that's been addressed and is important, like as driving is, you have to deal with the whole person, not just the task. Um, and I think that that's, that is real, real critical. In terms of, I, I would imagine, um, a couple of things, but first I want to just remind our audience, if you have questions, you can, you can go ahead and call in at 323 323- Eight seven zero four six zero two. That's three two three eight seven zero four six zero two. But I wanted to ask because I, I think some of our audience members are probably wondering about this: is how many sessions does it typically take um, if you're if you're doing a mediation, and how long is a typical session? I know earlier you had mentioned an hour, um, but I didn't know if that was kind of a, a you know an initial meeting, um, and if that varies. Um, going forward or not? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. So the hours that I mentioned, that's just for conflict coaching sessions. When I work with a conflict coaching client, I offer a series of five or six sessions so that they can learn something and then practice it and then come back. So we work over a period of time with just one person. Uh, With facilitated family meetings or uh, elder mediations, uh, I ask people to commit to just one session at a time, but most often it takes at least two because in the first session, you know, everybody says where they're at right then and then we create a topics list and then we figure out what do people already know and what additional information do they need and divide up what the information is that they need so that they can research that before a second uh, session. So in the first session, typically people are not quite ready to make decisions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Excuse me. I will have a sip of my tea. (laughs) Second year. Get a little dry mouth when I'm talking for that long. Um, So, but I didn't answer your question yet about how long one session is. Now, some mediators, you know, mediate all day. The kind of Mm -hmm. issues that I help people talk about are so emotional that I don't think that's a good idea, especially if the elders at the table themselves. So my sessions are typically three to four hours max. And if the elder is present themselves, what I do is I start late morning, then take a whole hour for lunch or even longer. If the elder is typical uh, is used to taking a nap after lunch, we'll make that possible and then come back for the second half of the meeting. So mm-hmm. I really want to make sure... <laughs> that everybody is fully mentally and and emotionally present to the best of their ability throughout the process. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Um, Is there ever a a time where you've had to just say, I I can't work with this family? I mean, where it just is so hostile? Um, There have been times, not because they're so hostile, I mean, it's a voluntary process, right? If they're so mm-hmm. hostile that they're not willing to come to the table, then there's nothing I can do to do, to help anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, the reasons why I would turn down a family is, A, if there is mental health issues involved, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert, obviously, but I know enough after all these years of doing this work and also getting, you know, additional education all the time, um, to recognize when there are mental health issues that prevent a party from being able to put themselves in another person's shoes. Mm -hmm. Because if any party can't do that, point for them to be there. You know, it's all about understanding each other and helping them understand each other. So, So that has happened maybe once or twice, that I turn down somebody. If they're not even willing to listen to me and hear and understand what I have to say, I know they're not going to be able to do that with the family members that they have strained relationships with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one situation. Another is um, elder abuse. 
there is a lot. I mean, I would say almost in 50% of the families I work with, uh, somebody abuses somebody of elder abuse. That's not uh, a reason in and of itself for me to turn people down. But if I get the feeling that there is such egregious elder abuse going on that talking things out isn't going to help and somebody really isn't safe, not just about financial issues, but really about physical and emotional safety, Mm -hmm. then I actually reserve the right to break confidentiality and to report to Adult Protective Services. And people know that from the outset. So those are the two situations where I might turn somebody down. But not in all cases of elder abuse, especially Mm -hmm. in cases of financial elder abuse. So it's often a family member who's the perpetrator, and it's a slippery slope, and they're not really aware of how wrong it is what they're doing. So in cases like that, I I believe that sometimes I can be more helpful than the legal system. So Mm -hmm. I don't turn those down. Okay. I, I was wondering if you were a mandated reporter um, or not for for vulnerable no. adults. Okay. Yes, and okay. I'm glad you're asking because that's another, in a way, advantage over a social worker because social workers are mandated reporters, whereas mediation confidentiality is protected by law, at least in California and some other states. Mm-hmm. And so it's a safe place for people to speak openly and honestly about concerns they have about each other's behavior. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's a really um very important thing to to know. That's for sure. Um people are also probably wondering, you know, where and when you conduct, you know, your meetings, especially I would imagine through COVID you've you've been forced to go online, but is that still an option for you and and you know, can you help people you know, throughout the globe or nationally, or is it just in your state? How does that work? Yeah, thank you for asking. So um, since the kind of mediation I do is not legal in nature, I can really help people anywhere. It's not limited to any state or anything like that. And it could be globally as far as the timing, as long as the timing works out. Um, I... I had the great good fortune to participate in an uh, in a training, a three-day training to become an online mediator, certified online mediator, in the summer of 2019. So I was just getting ready to start offering the service when COVID hit. So I was able to pivot really quickly. And at this point, I'm still offering all my services online. Um, and I've started, I've worked with a couple of families in person because they really wanted that, and I said I'm willing to do that as long as we do it outdoors in your backyard. In California, mm-hmm. of course, that's an option almost any time of year, so <laughs> that's been working out pretty well. Okay, <clears throat> okay. So wonderful. it's the client's choice. Um, okay. I mean, I work from my home anyway, so I always arrange meeting places that are feel safe and neutral to everybody involved, whether it's um, their home or whether it's some other place. Sometimes the family home doesn't feel like a neutral place to everybody involved. Then I arrange for, you know, a 
like a little conference room somewhere that's mm-hmm. convenient for everybody. Okay. Now, uh, you know, this is just such a, a touchy conversation for so many people. Uh, I would imagine some people are wondering, you know, do I reach out to her even if I even if I'm not sure the rest of the family will get together and, and even be in agreement? Is it worth it for them to to reach out to you prior and um, kind of talk things through in terms of how it would look like? Yes, absolutely. And I encourage people to talk to me first before they talk to family members. Uh, about the option of maybe having a facilitated family meeting or an elder care mediation because if there is strain within the families, typically it's human nature that anything that person A suggests, person B doesn't think is a good idea anyway. So I'd really like to uh, have the opportunity to talk to person A first and confidentially hear what the situation looks like from their perspective. And then we can brainstorm together what we can do to enroll others in at least talking to me without any obligation on their part initially. Um, so the initial conversation with me is, is up to an hour complimentary anyway. And then if that person wants to work with me, I typically ask them, to just pay me for one hour to talk to the next person in line so that the second person has the same chance as the first person to talk to me without any obligation on their part. And and then, you know, working down the food chain that way. And sometimes so so I encourage them to invite the person they think is most open to working with me to be par- person two and then keep working that way through the family system and talk to the most resistant person last because if, you know, let's say there are four siblings, if three already agreed, they think a facilitated family meeting is a good idea and and they've already talked to me, it makes it harder for the fourth person to refuse to at least have a conversation with me. And once every, they do have a conversation with me, because it is confidential and individual, and I, my purpose really is to understand each person's point of view and show them that I'm empathetic with them wherever they're coming from, it, it just so increases the chance that they'll you know, develop a trusting relationship with me and are open to the idea of having me help them talk it out. Okay. Okay. Sounds Sounds good. Um, if, let's say, in a family there's only one person who is willing to move forward, do you feel like you can still help them even if the rest of the family won't participate in terms of giving them ideas on, on how to move forward in a in a divided environment? Yes, absolutely. That's where conflict coaching comes in. That's where I help that person with three things, actually. First of all, I help them feel really heard and understood when they've had the experience that they're just banging the head against the wall, right? To have Mm -hmm. somebody really hear and understand them already gives a sense of relief and renewed clarity and hope. That's the first thing. Second thing is I help them make guesses about where the other people are coming from. So they can gain a new perspective 
even without talking to the other people. Because if we talk to somebody we are in conflict with, it's really hard to set aside our own position and really try to put ourselves in their shoes, right? But in the safe environment of just working with me, kind of in a role play where I may play the other person or I may play the client and invite them to play the other person, a new understanding can emerge in a safe environment. And then the third thing is I teach them some of my tools so they can talk to the other people differently and not, you know, get the same defensive or triggering reactions that they have been getting in the past. Okay. Wonderful. Well, great answer because I think sometimes people feel so lost when they can't get the family on board. And so to know that you've got those coaching skills to still guide them is is a wonderful, wonderful thing um, regarding that. Um, What kind of training did you need to become an an elder mediator? And, um, and, you know, how did you fall into this space? (laughs) Those are two separate questions. I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, As I was approaching 50, I was a long time ago. I was, um, I really wanted to make a career change. And I was thinking, what do I want to do for the rest of my life that I can do until, you know, a ripe old age? Because I don't really foresee ever retiring. And so uh, I spent about a year uh, going to conferences and workshops and networking meetings in, in the field of aging to see what's out there because I figured, you know, aging was probably a good field for me, number one, because it's a growing field, and number two, because a lot of in aging uh, are a little older and life experience is an asset rather than a liability in that field. So after about a year, I met somebody who told me about the profession of elder mediation that back then, you know, over 15 years ago, hardly anybody had heard of, and now still the majority of people haven't heard of, but it gets, the word gets out more than it has has in the past, thanks to people like you. So then I decided that's for me because, in part, because in California it's not a regulated field, so it didn't involve tons of training. I did not want to get another master's or anything like that. And in part because I had been involved in consensus-based organizations and facilitated meetings and other contexts for almost all my adult life. So it really resonated with me and my skill set and my values. So um, I did what people typically do is take a 30 to 40 hour basic mediation training, then volunteer for local nonprofit mediation agencies to get experience in any kind of mediation. And then after about a year of that, um, I actually went to the East Coast. I'm in California, but I went to the East Coast for a four-day elder mediation training that I really enjoyed a lot to get the specific skills um, to, to, to feel confident and competent in this area because part of the challenge about mediating in this arena is that we don't know what it's like to age until we get there. 
So it's really hard to put yourself in the other person's shoes, in the elder's shoes, right? So having really training in that area is very, very helpful, and I personally think it's very, very important. I'm involved in the National Association for Conflict Resolution, and we have an elder mediation section, and we feel strongly that people who want to practice in this area really should have specialized training in elder mediation, even though that's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, speaking of training, do you do some of that? Uh, do you train others? I don't offer trainings in elder mediation, but um, I do offer trainings two different kinds. One is um, customized trainings for um, people who offer aging services, for instance, home care agencies. Sometimes the bigger agencies have funds to bring in external trainers to help them with the communication piece, which is very difficult because not just the intergenerational differences in values and lifestyle that make it hard to put yourself, even as a caregiver, in the shoes of the elder, but also intercultural differences because the majority of professional caregivers have a different uh, cultural background than their typical clients. So um, I can really help uh, with trainings and role plays, uh, helping them have more effective conversations with their clients and maybe overcome resistance in those settings, including uh, dementia, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and this actually brings up something that you haven't asked yet, but I want to say is one of the main tools in my toolkit uh, is what's called compassionate com- communication. And it's a specific mode of communication that essentially is designed to get people out of their heads and into their hearts and create heart-to-heart understanding and, and connection. And that is such a useful to- tool when working with people uh, in the early to mid-stages of dementia because, you know, most people in our culture are really stumped when you can't have quote-unquote rational conversations anymore mm-hmm. because our society is so rational-oriented. But I believe that really all of us make our decisions with an emotional uh, component, you know, kind of have make gut decisions and then rationalize them. So really being in touch with our feelings and deeper longings helps us understand better where we are coming from, but also helps us understand where the elder is coming from, including the elder with dementia who doesn't make decisions in a quote-unquote rational manner anymore. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to the second part to my answer to your question, the kind of trainings I offer I offer um, a workshop series that's called Heart-to-Heart Conversations about the Challenges of Aging. And it's a series of like three to six two-hour workshops where I teach the, the how to apply compassionate communication in the arena of aging, how to express ourselves differently from the heart, how to listen differently from the heart, how to make requests different from the heart, and how to find solutions that meet everybody's needs. 
And so that's something I did in person for many years before COVID, and now I've been offering it uh, online via Zoom. That's very participatory, and anybody can participate. Wonderful. We are so in in terms of, I think, our thought process. And when you were talking about, um, you know, compassionate care, I, you know, I, I teach um, in what I call emotional-based training, and I've always said, you know, we've got to get people out of their heart or out of their heads and into their heart. And, um, you know, just some of the verbiage and stuff we use, it's just kind of amazing. But I think it really is so important for people to take advantage of of hearing this because it, it makes such a huge difference, not only in how you care for someone else, um, but how you are perceived and how you feel about yourself as a whole, because um, part of that, I think, comes into taking care of yourself when you're caring for another person. And a lot of times we don't talk about that, and yet we all know how critical that is. So I really appreciate uh, that you offer um, those courses to people, because I think it can just make a, uh, you know, almost be a a make or break difference in terms of how they they perceive what what actually is going on. you know, within within their own life and while caring for somebody else. And, and I think those things overlap in all of life. You know, once you, once you learn those lessons, it really makes a huge, huge um, difference as a whole. Um, You're making we... a really good point about um, the self-care aspect. That's, you know, a lot of caregivers really don't uh, – put on the oxygen mask on themselves first. Mm -hmm. And that's where self-compassion comes in. I'm actually part of a mediator's book group as part of my continued education. And right now we're reading a book that's called Self-Compassion. And that's really been eye-opening to me, how, you know, I teach people compassion for others, but I also uh, focus on teaching self-empathy or self-compassion first so that it makes it easier for people to be able to put themselves in the shoes of others. Exactly. And and that is, I mean, that just makes such a huge, huge difference. And it sometimes amazes me that people don't understand or, or see that, but it's, it really, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's life-changing. Uh, that's all I got to say about it. I mean, I know it was for me and, you know, it made it made it much easier to cope with everything because really what you're learning is coping skills and finding that balance and, and even recognizing what makes you feel good. You're so focused on somebody else, you forget what is it that you need. And, and then we get out of whack. And that's when yeah. I think m- miscommunications can really, really divide a family. Yeah. That's when we come from a place of reacting rather than responding. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, this has just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I, I know our listeners are getting a lot out of this. You've given so many good um, tips and things. If people want to find out, you know, where you you um, where you're doing your events or when, um, how would they do that? Do they just go to your website or? Yes, the easiest way is to go to my website www.aginginharmony.com. There is a 
uh, page for up, upcoming events. Right now, I have to admit there are no upcoming events on it, but I left last week's series of heart-to-heart conversations last year's on there so people can see uh, what they look like in case you know any organization wants to partner with me on offering them. They can see what they look like. Uh, I also do have an event that's not up there yet because it's not set in stone yet, but I'm planning to give a workshop, a two-hour workshop, a Zoom workshop on uh, forgiveness on the journey of aging together no, with uh, a colleague who is a forgiveness coach. And we're planning, we're hoping to do that on July 10th because July 7th is Global Forgiveness Day. And forgiveness plays such a big role in this context that we're talking about because a part of the what's at the root of a lot of tensions later in life among family members is pain from the past. And mm-hmm. if we can let go of that, it makes it so much easier to collaborate in the present and plan for the future. Oh, I, I totally agree. Now, some people might want to also find a, a mediator, an elder mediator in their own area, you know, if they're not out in uh, in California. Um, how, is there a way to do that? Is there a, like a main website to be able to find people? Yes, um, there is a, a kind of a directory to find any kind of mediator. It's called mediate.com. And you can just enter the specialty you're looking for, which could be elder in this particular case. Uh, and uh, and you enter either your city or your area code, and people in your area will come up. I do want to remind you that since COVID, everybody has moved to to offering their services online, and both the technology has developed and our skill sets have developed and for most families you know doing it online might be uh, a good option even the Mm -hmm. elders now have gotten used to being on zoom they may not be able to set it up themselves but you know so many like they see their doctors and you know all kinds of activities yoga um, all kinds of activities even for the elders, happen online now, that the comfort level of all generations, I think, is higher. And it opens up new possibilities about bringing families together with ease because they're so spread out. A lot of families are spread out all throughout the country. And it used to be that a lot of my mediations or facilitated family meetings happened around holidays, like right before thanksgiving or right after thanksgiving or christmas or new year's i've mediated you know the day after thanksgiving i've mediated on january 1st and it's hard for the family they want to come together and see each other enjoy the holidays so you know doing things online offers another alternative and that i can do for people anywhere okay wonderful and again uh, to our listeners, you can reach out uh, to uh, Katharina's uh, website, which is www.aginginharmony.com, aginginharmony.com, or her email is her first name, which is K-A-T-H-A-R 
I-N-A at agingandharmony.com. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate that. Is there um, is there anything that we missed? We've got about eight minutes left, so if there's something else that, that I, I know, um, didn't touch on that we should have, please let me know. I don't think there's anything that we missed. Um, I just want to add my phone number, too. Sure. Because I'm a phone person. So, of course, if people feel more comfortable to contact me through my website or through email, that's totally fine. But my preference is to talk on the phone, which is 510-356-7830. I answer my phone anytime 24-7 if I'm not in a meeting or or asleep. (laughs) So don't worry about time zones. And typically when people first call me, all I do is ask them to look at their calendar and I look at mine and and we find a time when both of us have time to talk for about an hour on the phone or via Zoom, complimentary, whatever they prefer. So Mm -hmm. that's the easiest for me, but I think it's also the easiest for them because sometimes, you know, we call back, uh, we email back and forth a long time until we find a time that works for everybody. Yep. Well, that's good. And so, it's nice to know you answer your answer your phone. I know with me, I usually let it roll into voicemail because I'm just so paranoid of scams and, and getting numbers uh, that, I, that I'm not familiar with. So kudos for you for being brave. Yeah. Um, because I think it is so much easier to talk something out and pin it down versus, uh, you know, emailing or texting, those types of things that communication, I think, can break down. Um, because it is it is an emotional topic, and um, you know you need to read all of those things into it, and you, you can't all the time uh, when you're not hearing the tone of voice and and um, how urgent something is might not always come through. So um, again, thank you for <clears throat> for all these wonderful services that you offer people. This is absolutely fantastic, and I I really do think it was a very very important topic. You know we. There are a lot of families that struggle out there, and um, we do need to get them to that place of, of peace and comfort so everybody can be their best. And so, again, if you are a family in need of some navigation of um, difficult uh, situations, uh, especially when it comes to regarding care, uh, Katharina can really help you. So please reach out to her again at uh, aginginharmony.com. Thanks, everybody. Uh, until next week, have a, uh, a brilliant uh, next few days. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Bye now. Thank, thank you, Lori, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thank listeners. you. Bye. Have a good Bye-bye. day. Bye.